Hey everyone, welcome to the Badass Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Fox. Today I'd like to talk for a few minutes about one of those catchphrases we often see or hear in the writing community. Writing organically. Showing your characters' personalities organically. Weaving in all of those different elements organically. So let's take a moment to break that down and understand what that means. Now, I'm not talking about being a pantser and sitting down to write organically and seeing where the story takes you without knowing really what's going to happen. So some call that organic writing. It's basically pantsing and that's totally fine. You're discovering the story organically as you write it. But what I want to talk about today is on more of a micro level. So I'm talking about all of the elements of storytelling and how to ensure that they're being woven in naturally instead of being forced into place. So if you read a story that's forced, or you're basically like spoon-fed information, it's just not enjoyable. And as a writer, you want to make sure that you take the steps so that you ensure you're not doing those things. As an example, one of the things I often see is about translations in text. So if a character is narrating in one language, but it's not their native tongue, and they say something in their native tongue, I'll often see it immediately translated. And this is an inorganic way to get that message across. A book that I read last year called Anchored Hearts by Priscilla Oliveras, she did her translations really, really well. I always refer to this book, it's a rom-com, when I talk about this as a great example. So the narration is in English, but because she comes from a Spanish background, there's lots of little tidbits of Spanish in there kind of woven in. So there's one part where she says, Yes, I'm here. I gotta go, mama. Te llamo más tarde. And I apologize, my Spanish is not very good. But some writers might be inclined to write the other language in italics, or put the English translation in brackets, or use like M dashes to separate the translation and make it stand out. But this is not an organic way to let that translation come through. Firstly, you need to trust your reader. Your readers are smart, and even if they don't understand Spanish, they're not looking for an explanation of what it means. So doing so pulls them out of the story. The best way to handle a translation without dumbing down the text for your reader is to work in that translation organically. The line that follows that example is, she chugged another gulp, certain that her promise to call later wouldn't stop her mom from bugging her before then. So we can immediately grasp what the Spanish words mean without ever having to stop and think about it or go and ask the Google to translate it. It's woven in naturally and we understand it without having to try and also without the author blatantly pointing it out to us. So if you're writing a book that contains excerpts in a different language, I recommend that you go through the manuscript and see how many actual translations that you provide for the reader's benefit. I understand that the intentions are good, but I guarantee you, your line level writing will improve vastly if you take out the translations and work them in in other ways, and your readers will love it. Don't spoon feed them information. Trust them to understand what's being said, and only help them a little bit by using the narration or dialogue to sneakily work it in. Another thing that I'll often see is when a character is being introduced to the reader, We're seeing the first and last name, we'll see the eye color, the hair color and style, maybe something that stands out like a birthmark or a tattoo or a certain way they stand or walk or a tick of some sort. We'll see what they're wearing, etc. Like we'll get the full view of what this character looks like. This is essentially an info dump. It's like we're trying too hard to make the reader see what we're seeing in our heads as the author, but really... Does it matter if the reader sees the exact same person that we do? No, they're going to draw their own conclusions. And a reader's brain prefers to draw their own conclusions. What matters are those few important details that you'll weave in for a specific reason. The other stuff doesn't have to come all up front. You can work in physical traits in other, more clever, or let's say it, organic ways. For example, when your main character is meeting up with, like, their best friend that they've known since childhood. Are they really going to notice all of these little things about them when they're meeting up for drinks or going to a game together? 
No, because they already know these things about them. So what we have is the writer giving us all of this information about their best friend to try and implant a physical likeness into our brains. The reader doesn't need that. All they need to know is what the main character or narrator does notice about them. Did they cut and dye their hair, perhaps? You could say something like, I was surprised to see Julie with short blonde locks as opposed to her usual brown wavy tresses. This is a detail that you as the author may decide is important to the story, so the reader must know. Maybe Julie has cut and dyed her hair because she's trying to hide from someone. Who knows? But what she's wearing doesn't really matter. Or if she's wearing heels and it's going to matter later on because, I don't know, she gets her heels stuck in a grate in the sidewalk and therefore can't get out of the way when a bicyclist rides by and they end up crashing. That detail about Julie's clothing might be important. Her eye color? Not so important. Maybe not right now. Maybe not ever. But if you do want to work in like a little detail like that for the reader, weave it in somewhere else. Don't make it obvious because if the narrator who knows this best friend and knows what their eye color is, they're not focusing on the eye color that they've known to be blue or whatever for the last, you know, 20 or 30 years. They already know that. So that's not what they're noticing. Remember that most of the details that you include in your story should also have a reason for being there. So in the story I'm working on right now, there's a certain pair of red wing-tipped glasses, and they have great significance later on. At the beginning of the story, I mention them very casually. I just kind of, you know, stick it in there, but it's very organic, like it's very natural. Yes, there are some details added to ensure that the reader has a general idea of who the main character is seeing. And that has a lot to do with like setting the tone and displaying the personality of the other character, because that's going to be important. But in terms of physical description, there aren't a lot of details about the woman because they simply aren't needed. But she does don a pair of red wing-tipped glasses at one point. And even though they're pointed out casually, they are there and there's a reason for them they will make another important appearance later on. So I want to have that in there in a natural way and they stand out. They're red, they're wing-tipped, you know, that's maybe a little bit not so typical of glasses that people see, so I want something like that to stand out in the reader's mind. So working sharp specifics into the narration is important and it also helps when you're trying to describe something organically. There is a wrong way to do that, though. You don't want to stick something in there just for the sake of sticking it in there. There needs to be a reason for whatever that sharp specific is. Don't tell the reader everything about the character's physical looks, because it wouldn't be natural for the main character to notice these things. Tell us one or two things about them and focus on what the narrator notices about them that's different or something that's always the same. For example, if the main character knows that I don't know, Julie's an introvert and she's very anxious in public. The main character might point out the fact that Julie is wearing her hair down, as usual, as a way to hide as much of her face as possible because she knows she'll turn red in the presence of anyone, anywhere, no matter what's being said. But instead of saying her hair, you might say her golden locks. And that way you're weaving in the detail, the physical detail, that she has blonde hair. And we're also learning that it's long, or at least as long as her head is, because she uses it as a coping mechanism or like a shield to hide from people. So this is a much more organic way to tell us about Julie, a way that doesn't sound info dumpy or like it's being spoon fed to the reader, stuff that doesn't matter, stuff that the narrator wouldn't notice. One important thing to keep in mind as well is that the more you know your character, the more naturally these things will come to you and come out on the page. Know your character deeply. I've talked about this on the podcast before. One thing you can do is interview them. So sit down and talk to them. Talk to them as if they're sitting right across from you. Ask them questions. Ask them about their past, their childhood, their upbringing, what their school was like, etc. And then go even deeper. Doing this can get you to the most important thing, the why behind what they do, how they feel, and how they react to things. So you can get a copy of my in-depth character development sheets by signing up for my newsletter at foxeditorial.com. 
and that's with two X's, with the caveat that I haven't actually started the newsletter yet. <laughs> if you sign up, you get the free character development sheets. And then when I do start the newsletters, which will probably be in early 2023, you'll be on the list already and you won't miss out on any important info. I promise not to be spammy. I promise the character development sheets are worth it. They're very in-depth and they're very helpful when you're developing your characters. You also wanna remember that writing organically means having conflict that relates directly to the character's motivations. So if you're gonna have something happen and it has no bearing on the outcome of the story, that's not organic. Everything that happens in the story that's standing in the character's way must be in opposition to what they want. The interaction that the character has with the surroundings and the people there must occur naturally. There can't be any coincidences in stories because there must be a reason for everything that happens and it must have a direct impact on what's ahead. And all of what's happening will have a direct impact on the overall character arc, which is super important because remember, a character must go through a change from the beginning of the story to the end. They must be a different person at the end than they were at the start. If anything is forced into the story along the way or doesn't feel natural, then that's where the story and the writing are going to start to fall apart. So these are just a couple of tips that you can apply to your own writing to ensure that you're writing organically. Really put yourself in your character's shoes and include only the important information that they would notice, not what you're seeing in your head. Yes, you are the writer of the story, but what you're seeing is less important than what your character is seeing. Because what your character is seeing and feeling and noticing is what matters to the story. It's your character's story. You are the vessel by which the story will come alive. So recently I put out a call on Twitter and Instagram and I have created a form so that if you have any questions that you'd like to have answered on the podcast, you can ask those. So I do have a couple that I will get to today. And our first one comes from Miguel. And Miguel says, an agent mentioned I used too much exposition, but I thought that it was mandatory for the first chapter to introduce the major characters and setting in the beginning. So it's interesting because um, yesterday or the day before, a couple days ago, I just put out a post that was talking about showing versus telling. So if an agent is talking about exposition, what they're talking about is that you, you have too much telling going on. Um, and what you want to see in most of the book, probably about 70%, is showing. So when you're showing, you are immersing the reader in the scene. You're using sensory details. You are allowing them the opportunity to be grounded in the scene. You're giving them the opportunity to experience the scene closely so that you're you're showing them your character's feelings. You're showing them um, what they're seeing, what they're touching, what they're smelling. So you're adding in all of these great details to really enrich the scene. So when you're using exposition, when you want to tell the reader things, it's basically like laying the information out there for them. So it doesn't give them the opportunity to really experience things through the character's point of view. You're not letting them infer things. You're just giving them a piece of information and, and then moving on. Readers' brains need exposition. It helps to keep the pace where it should be. And it also, like, you don't want to overload your reader with too much. You want to ground them in the scene, yes. But if all you have is show, 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 it's just, it's too much for the reader. Their brains need both, but a good rule of thumb is that about two-thirds of your book in total should be showing, and about a third should be telling. There is a book that I recommend to a lot of my clients, and it is called Show, Don't Tell, How to Write Vivid Descriptions, Handle Backstory, 
and describe your character's emotions. And it is by Sandra Girth. I really like it. It's a super quick and easy read. And she's got lots of information, examples, and then of course there's exercises for you to do as well. So this can really help you hone the skill of showing and also telling because you do hear show don't tell, but you need show and you need tell. So telling is that exposition part. Another way to look at it is when you're showing, you are basically giving the reader the opportunity to draw their own conclusions about things. So you're you're letting them, you kind of set the stage for them in the scene, but you're letting their imagination add to the scene. And a reader's brain really, really needs to do this. They like to be actively participating in the story. It's not a conscious decision to do so, but it's just something that our brains like. We like to do that when we're reading. So that's why it's so, so important to have lots of showing. But again, like I said, you do need that exposition as well because you don't want to overload. And you want, you want, there are going to be times where you don't have to focus so much on something. You, you have to tell them the information and that's it. And there's no room for inferring things or drawing their own conclusions. You have to just give them the information and move on. So that is what the agent is referring to when they're talking about exposition. And you don't want too much exposition, especially in the first chapter, because you really, really want to hook your reader in. And a great way to do that is by using lots of showing and lots of voice and emotion on the page. So I recommend getting Sandra's book and going through it really quickly. It really, it honestly does not take long. And it's, it's an interesting read. Um, do some of the exercises that she's got in there and that will help you to really understand the difference between the showing and the telling or the exposition and then you can go through your manuscript um, and if it's especially referring to that first chapter and maybe make some revisions so that you have more showing and less exposition. So just taking something that I said in my Instagram post the other day, if you have too much showing, if we spend 100% of the book showing the reader things, it will make the story much longer and verbose. And they would probably put the book down long before they finish reading it. It's just too many details. And that's why having expository passages is important because, like I said, it keeps the story moving at a good pace. In terms of knowing when it's important to show and not tell, so when you want to set the scene, when you want to evoke emotions from the reader, that's when you want to show versus telling, which is giving the reader what they need to know, moving on. That's it. So you as the author need to decide which passages should be showing and which passages should be telling. So the ones that are showing are going to be the ones where the reader is actively engaged in the story. The ones that are telling, that's just feeding the, the reader information that, yes, they need to know, but you don't need to spend so much time on it. So, yes, it's important to introduce the major characters and the setting in the beginning. You want to have all of these things. You, you want to have all of the important elements in the first chapter, but it's the way that they're being told. So if there's too much exposition, then it kind of like it. If there's too much telling going on and the reader is just being fed all of the information, then it's it's not going to compel them to read because they're just being told everything. The reader is going to want to theorize. They're going to want to feel the emotions that the character's feeling. They're going to want to see what they're seeing. Um, they're going to want to... What, what's going to make them urgently turn to the next chapter is if they are fully immersed in that scene and they care about the character. Um, part of caring for that character, you can tell them all the information, but if they don't feel it, if they don't, if they're not actively engaged with the scene and wondering things and curious about things, then they're not going to be compelled to keep turning those pages. So that's another way to look at, you know, the importance of having lots of showing and not too much exposition. Especially with the setting, you really want to focus on using those sensory details because the reader, you can help them 
picture themselves, put them right into that scene, put them right into that story. And, you know, if they're looking around, what do they see? What do you want them to see? Um, and with the characters, I mean, you can say, this is my character. This is my character's name. This is what they do for a living. This is who they live with. This is what they care about. This is what they're doing right now. Like you, that That's exposition. I mean, obviously, that's an ex- extreme example. But I mean, it, it's flat. Like there's no, there's no emotion there. There's no voice there. Um, there's no extra details there. So putting in those extra details really, really matters, especially in that first chapter. So I am going to read a little bit of the story that I'm working on. And this is just an excerpt. It is a work in progress, so it's not published or anything like that. It's just something that I'm working on. But it's one of my favorite scenes that I've written in this manuscript. I apologize. It is not in top condition. Hopefully it will illustrate the difference between showing and exposition. Here's the scene. There's a soft, distant humming, low and beautiful. The haunting melody floats into the air, carried by a thousand silky strands of golden thread caressing my ear. So intimate. The humming seamlessly becomes a sound I know and love. A cello. It steals my breath. I open my eyes to darkness, but the music still plays. It's not a dream. My clock is flashing again, no idea what time it is. I rise from my bed, careful not to wake Travis, and follow the tune a part of me somehow recognizes. It strings me along and breaks my heart at the same time, beckoning me on. I take the stairs with caution, slow and silent, as my silk nightgown glides across my ankles with each step. The house is still. The eerie, distant notes lure me like a magnet to the drawing room. My eyes make out only rough shapes in the night, but I know where to set my gaze. Straight ahead, across from the doorway, there is movement where the cello sits. The sound echoes simultaneously through the room and in my mind. The player sways as the bow cuts across the strings, obscured in shadows. I am mesmerized. I don't know where the song begins and ends. There is so much emotion in the wordless story that I begin to weep in silence but I must know who is playing. I reach over to the light switch and flip it up, illuminating the room in a soft, dim glow. At once, the music fades into the night, and I am left staring at an empty room, the cello sitting neatly in its stand, untouched, unplayed. No one is holding the bow. So that is the scene. So what my intentions are here is to really ground the reader in what's happening. I want them to experience it the way that the narrator is experiencing it. I want them to pick up on certain things. So I'm using lots of sensory detail in order to try and accomplish that. If I didn't want to zoom in on what was happening here, I could easily and quickly just say, I woke up to the sound of a cello playing somewhere in the house. Grabbing my robe, I slipped it on as I went downstairs into the drawing room where it looked like someone was playing the instrument. I flicked on the light and suddenly the music stopped and no one was there. So it's way quicker, but in a scene where you really want to draw attention to what's going on and and the emotions that the character's feeling, what they're experiencing, that is where you need to not use exposition and you need to infuse the scene with all those little details we know it's dark we can feel as she's gliding down the stairs she's taking the stairs with caution the silk nightgown glides across her ankles with each step that might make someone feel what that feels like i know what that feels like i know what it feels like to have a silk nightgown gliding across my ankles when i'm walking or a dress or something like that so it's, it's helping to ground the reader in the scene. But if you're just telling them the information, you're not really giving them that chance to experience it the same way. So if we look at some of the, some of the sentences here, she says, I reach over to the light switch and flip it up. Well, I mean, that's essentially telling. But then I add to it by saying, illuminating the room in a soft, dim glow. Another sentence could be, my clock is flashing again, no idea what time it is. That is essentially telling as well. 
but we're giving information. My clock is flashing again. This means that this has happened before. We know that it's dark. She doesn't know what time it is. Instead of saying something like, I carefully go down the stairs. It says, I take the stairs with caution, slow and silent. And then I add to it by giving that sensory detail as the silk nightgown glides across my ankles with each step. The house is still. Now that is telling, the house is still. But because it's mixed in with everything else here, it just adds to what is happening. It's really, it, it's helping to establish what's going on. It's very quiet. It's very dark. It's the middle of the night. Nobody else is awake. It's very eerie. Something is going on. So I'm really trying to build up that sense of, you know, the creep factor, the creepiness. I want the reader to be immersed in this scene. So I definitely wanted to really show and like do almost no exposition. So yeah, that kind of turned into a show versus tell um, mini course, <laughs> but hopefully it helps you um, understand the exposition and how to incorporate more showing and not so much exposition in your manuscript. So I hope that answers your question, Miguel, and thank you so much for taking the time to send in a question. The next question comes from Andrea. Andrea says, I've just heard in a querying training session that comp titles are ideally from debut authors. That's the first time I've heard that advice. I understand that it's unrealistic to use J.K. Rowling or Stephen King to give agents or publishing houses a sense of how your book will perform, but I'm also not sure that limiting yourself to debut authors only is the right move. Thoughts? My thought is, I've never heard that piece of advice before. It's interesting. I mean, there's nothing wrong with using a debut novel or debut author for a comp if that's what fits your story. But the important thing to remember is that you want to have a comp that really showcases the one of the main elements. So if you're, you should comp to two, you should have two in your query and make them kind of an intersection of the main elements in your story. So like an X meets Y. It really should be, you should try and have it within the last three to five years. You want something recent and you want something that is well known and that has sold well. And I say that with the caveat of knowing that we don't know how, how much books sell. We don't know how well they do um, and how much they bring in. However, you can kind of get a general sense if you go on Amazon and you look at how many reviews they have. If you go on Goodreads, you look at their reviews there. So that can kind of give you a sense of the popularity factor. You want to comp to books that are well known. When you're comparing your title to another title, you're basically telling the agent or the publisher, this is where I see my book sitting on a bookshelf in a store where people are going to go and buy it. It's going to be in the same genre, ideally. And again, like you can use, you, you can use an older comp. It doesn't have to be two absolutely recent comps. It doesn't even have to be two books. Make at least one of them a book because you're writing a book. So that's the market you're targeting. But you can have an older comp that is like, you know, a classic, just something that, you know, like a, a Shirley Jackson book, for example. Some people use things like, you know, an Emily Bronte book or... Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. It's well known, but it's quite old. But in that case, you especially want to use a comp that is very recent. In terms of it being a debut novel or debut author, I personally have never heard that. I've had a lot of agents talk about comps. I've heard in a lot of different sessions and podcasts, um, agents that I interact with on a regular basis. I haven't heard them say that, so I don't know. I mean, I am not a literary agent, so I can't really comment on, on what that agent said and, and say that it's right or wrong. I don't think it is right or wrong. I think what it comes down to at the end of the day is find a comp or find two comps that really match the themes or the elements in your book. So you're looking for things that are like character dynamics, 
the writing style, the tone or the mood, things like that. Not necessarily the plot um, setting as well. Like there's all kinds of things that you can comp to. My personal opinion is that using only debut authors for a comp really limits your selection. If it's a debut, there might not have been enough time that has gone by to really measure the success of that novel. And that's what it comes down to. You want to choose a novel that is going to represent where you want yours sitting in the market. So I hope that helps. I don't know if it helps. Um, those are my thoughts. Again, I'm not a literary agent, but I have listened to many of them talk about comps. And honestly, I haven't heard that before. So that's really interesting. And if there are any literary agents listening, I would love to hear your advice on that and what your take is on having a comp only come from a debut author. So thank you, Andrea, for sending that in. And I hope it helps you. My guest today is Phil Rollins, a screenwriter, author, and producer. After many years as a safe pair of hands actor, mainly in film and television, he moved into the production side as a freelance writer and producer. He's written feature films, TV and radio dramas, documentaries, and animation series, and worked on productions as a script doctor and consultant. In 2009, Phil was one of the co-founders of Funky Medics, a production company focusing mainly on innovative health education. Its projects have included heart disease, diabetes, smoking, and drug abuse. Currently, he has four screenplays under option, one for production in 2023, the other three at various stages of draft development. Sienna, his first novel, was revised and republished by Diamond Crime, along with his second single cell in April 2021. The third, Time Slip, was released in March 2022. Phil writes in a shed at the bottom of his small garden. Originally from Pembrokeshire in West Wales, he now lives near Cardiff and has British nationality and Canadian citizenship. So welcome, Phil, and thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for asking me. So starting with your most recent thriller, Time Slip, so that was published earlier this year. Can you give our listeners a summary of what the book is about? Yeah, it's... Um... It's the story of a writer, Ian Chambers, whose life is imploding. He's very late on the late, the last draft of his latest novel. He's, uh, he's having a crazy moment with his best friend and they've, they've had a massive fight. Uh, his wife is pregnant, his son is five year, coming up to five years old uh, and nothing seems to be going right for him. It's just, uh, it's just like hell. His, his agent is also threatening to drop him. And he lives in Yorkshire. He's, uh, everything else happens in London. So he goes back home to Yorkshire and one night he goes for a walk on the beach to try and clear his head. Uh, and it's a very sort of stormy night. There's thunder and lightning and something happens when he experiences something that's so terrifying that he begins to question his sanity. So what happens within the book is his desperate search for a rational explanation where he risks losing not only the reality that he knows, but also his very existence. It's, it's a novel about time and it's a novel about how the past impacts on the present uh, and vice versa. And there's, there's um, you know, there's a lot of humour in it as well. It sounds like the odds are kind of against him with all of these things that are that are going on for him. Well, they are, but, you know, some of it's his own fault. He sort of sets his own pathway. Uh, he doesn't think, you know, and he has the mind of a writer that moves, you know, in diverse and, and strange ways sometimes. And it's oh, his journey sure. through the book and how, how he comes out of that, 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 that is what interests me. And, and the idea of parallels of time and the sort of location of where they are as well. I mean, Yorkshire is a very rugged area. So, uh, yeah. It moves across two time spans, and it's how the impact is the important thing. Right. And you've been involved in a wide variety of writing and screenwriting projects. So what made you decide to start writing and publish novels? I don't know. It's something I'd always wanted to do, really, because I, I've written from a, a very early age. You know, I wrote poetry when I was little, but I, I never sort of put it down. And then I got involved in, in different worlds. Uh, you know, I started as an engineer and then... Uh, I became 
an actor and then a writer, then a producer. And I'd always been a little bit frightened of, of sitting down and starting a novel because it's, uh, it's a very long process and, and you have to have the, the sort of focus to be able to do it. And it took me a long time to get around to doing that. And Sienna, the first one, started out as an idea for a movie. And it sort of began to be obvious that it was going to be a very expensive movie to make if it ever happened. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so I thought, well, look, this is the time. Why don't I just go for it and see if I can come up with it? And so I did. And, and that was, you know, how I started. And it was... I suppose I, I really enjoyed it, but it was as tough as I thought it was going to be. And it was a very different process to screenwriting. You, you have a much broader canvas in a way. So it, it, yeah, it took a while to get there, but um, you know, it, it, it was a good journey. So not being a screenwriter myself, what are the main differences between screenwriting and novel writing? I, that may seem like a weird question <laughs> because I know they're two very different <laughs> mediums, but, but what would you say are the main differences? Well, really, I, I suppose one, one is visual um, and, and the other allows the, the reader to, to create their own sort of visuals for it. Um, and with, with film, you have a sort of shorthand to move from scene to scene. You know, there always has to be inevitability of, of when you go from A to B and, and who says what and how they say it. And the idea of dialogue is that you use as little dialogue as possible you know, and if you can't see it, then you say it. So it's, it's, it's a really different process. But the novel that allows you to get more deeply into, into the characters and to uh, explore them more, I suppose, in, in, a, in, in a way that you can't really have time to do in a movie. Right. Yeah, I think um, exploring that interiority, which can't be shown in a movie, right? Yeah, well, that's that's always the you know the the, the tricky bit of, of of a movie or a TV thing is mm -hmm. showing what they're thinking, right? You know, and and you can't really. I mean, there are ways of doing it, but you have to see, and it it has to be, you know, an awful lot can be said by the way people are looking, by the, the faces, by you know how they react to things around them, and mm -hmm. and acting is about response. You know, it's it's reaction. It's not so much action. Right. So you, you you find out the story through that, whereas you have much more time in a, in, in a novel to to explore that. Right. And then so where did you where do you tend to find the inspiration for the for your thrillers? What made you decide that thriller is where you wanted to focus on? Oh, because what interests me is, is uh, you know, why people do things and how they when they're put into extraordinary situations, how they get through it. Uh, and what is it that drives them, you know, the tenacity of the human spirit. Um, so e each story has, has a different, so there's been three so far, there's Sienna, there's Single Cell and um, Time Slip. The inspiration really for, for Sienna was I wanted to explore grief and I wanted to explore how when the worst thing that you could ever think of happening happens, how you would get through that. And in a way, I made, made it very difficult for myself because my my main character was was a woman who whose son and husband are, uh, are killed in a in a shooting of an Italian businessman in London. They're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. So I wanted to understand and to explore that that sort of area. Now, you know, one of the tricky things with that is a I'm not a woman. Yeah. Uh, be you know even as a father the relationship between mother and child is very different mm -hmm. so I, I had to find a way to to get into that so I went to the closest thing I could come to that sort of shock which was the death of my father when I was 13 uh, and I used that sort of um, as, as a stepping off point so it, it was what interested me was exploring how you would how you would get through something like that and in a way find closure and come out of the come out of it the other side with single cell it was it, it was a, a series of stories that i'd read about suicides in prison and it sort of interested me to think well okay perhaps some of these suicides mightn't have been suicides 
because there was conversation that was going or suggestion occasionally that that some of the suicide verdicts were a bit sort of suspect uh, and again it was something extraordinary happening to an ordinary person so it's the story of a of an assistant governor in a prison who finds a suicide that's happened suspicious and what happens when he starts to investigate it and how he gets caught up in that and, and again gets into this incredible journey that 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 just happens and he it's a, a world he doesn't know so he has to get through that somehow so with, with time slip it, it was uh we we used to live in yorkshire and uh, we lived in a little village called Fridaythorpe, which is in the middle of the yorkshire worlds and the yorkshire worlds is a glacial valley that runs across the country and and it's it's incredibly sort of mesmeric place and and the location, the deep valleys, the the weather that they have there is, is is very strange. But there's also a beach that I used to take my son when he was very little. In in the winter, when my wife, who's an artist, was working, we would go off to have a walk on the beach, in in a place called uh, Bridlington. And uh, one one of these days, I was walking with him. He was about six months old, and he was sort of on my chest, facing me, uh, and as we were walking along the beach, it, it had started to rain, it started to get very, uh, very chilly. And, you know, I thought we'd be okay, I thought we'd be able to sort of carry on our walk and get back before it all started to rain. But as we approached an old concrete lookout shelter from the Second World War, the storm started and it was very heavy rain uh, and, and thunder and lightning. So I thought what we should do is go inside this um, this lookout post and, and and shelter for a while. So we did, we went into it and it was very messy in there. And there was a lot of stuff that we didn't want to know what it was and the smell was awful, but <laughs> at least we were, uh, you know, away from the storm. Right. And then suddenly it started to get incredibly cold in there, colder than it had been outside. Oh. And I began to, to get a feeling that there was somebody else there. Uh, and, and there wasn't, there wasn't anybody else there. But it was very, very spooky. And it started to upset my son. And he started to cry. So I decided that, you know, we, 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 we would go. So we went and we ran back along the beach and, and got back to the car soaking. But it was something that stayed with me. And so when I was planning time slip, that was, you know, something that, that was my starting point, was, was something that happened within that lookout shelter. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. <laughs> there's there's a lot of inspiration that we can take from from certain moments in life, especially ones that are kind of unexpected. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Did you are are there kind of like stories that surround that certain place? Is there other experiences that people have had that you know of? Um, no, I don't know whether they have, but I'm I would suspect that they did have, because it's um, you know, a lot happened in that area during the war. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so with time slip, which is set in in sort of contemporary times, but also during the Second World War, um, it, it was a, a point where you know they people would try and and you'd get sort of spies trying to come into that area. So everybody was aware that you know that that the because UK is an island and that particularly sort of secluded areas was always sort of well patrolled and, and these lookout posts stretched right across the country. Okay. So I, I'm sure that, and I have heard other stories of other places like that, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. but it was, it was a very strange feeling. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it sounds like it. <laughs> and just going back for a second about what you were saying about um, your main character in Siena, that was a woman. What made you decide to write from a woman's perspective? Do you do you tend to get your characters in your mind first, or do you do you get the plot in your mind first? I I, I think probably um, there would be the the embryo of the plot there, and and where the whole concept came from, and, and that 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 moment that you think hang on, here's something I'm really interested in that I would like to write about. Uh, and, and then the character comes from that point. Um, and I, I allow the characters to grow as I begin to understand what I'm doing with it. And, and, and the story sort of evolves. 
and I think you know there are two ways of writing. One is planning everything before you you sit down and do it, uh, and the other is is sort of letting the characters take their their own pathway. Really, that that is what what I sort of tend to do. But I always is have a you know I know my starting point, and I know where I want to reach at the end. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to get there. <laughs> And occasionally, you know, you, you do that sliding doors where you, if the character you feel is moving down the wrong way, you sort of slightly edge them around a little bit. But with Sienna, it, it was it was that exploration of, of, of grief and understanding uh, how that could affect somebody and, and how you would be able to come out of that. And, and I find that, you know, when I'm writing and I, I read stuff out loud because it's, it distances itself a little bit from the page, and and, right. and and you can sort of see whether it's working or not. And and I think probably from being an actor as well, I I, I sort of felt everything that I was writing. Right. Um, yeah. And so you know, I, there'd be sort of odd sounds coming out of the shed, probably, if people <laughs> passed. Uh, you know, writing from uh, another person's point of view, uh, whether it be male or female, I I think. If, if you get an understanding of who the character is, then then you have an opportunity to explore that. Yeah, absolutely. It's more about it's more about knowing who they are at their core, regardless of whether they're male or female. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So you're also a member of several writing organizations. So, for example, Crime Writers of Canada, which is how we quote unquote met. Um, can you give our listeners some of the benefits that you've experienced from belonging to writing organizations? Well, I, th I think one of the biggest benefits is support. Because writers are incredibly supportive people. You've got advice on hand, but they know what you're going through because they, they go through the same sort of things. Mm -hmm. uh, and, it, and it's being able to, to uh, explore their work as well, see how they write. Uh, and how their creative process works. And it's such a, a great learning possibility that they they allow you to be part of this, this not a select group, but this group of people that that all have a common ground. And, and it's fun to be with people and, you know, going to festivals and, and, and doing, you know, a lot of Zooms now and things like that. It's an interesting thing, but, you know, particularly for the support level, uh, you know, because we all need that. Uh, and when when others have gone through the same thing, it it's a lot easier for them to understand, and for you to understand. Right. Yeah, I agree. I um, I'm very big on the writing community as a whole, and whether that's in writing groups or um, you know, critique groups, writing organizations, things like that. If you can, uh, you know, before I started doing this as much as I'm doing it now, I was always under the assumption that, oh yeah, writing is so lonely and you're doing it all by yourself. And you just, you know, that's just, I think that's the mindset of a lot of people that that don't write or who are just getting into writing. And I think once you get into it and you start meeting people and you become a part of these organizations and you realize, wow, there's so many other people out there that are just like me in the same spot or they've they've been there and now they they're turning around and, and helping people like me, you know, learn and, and get opportunities and things like that. And I think it's so important to have that sense of community. And I think that's I think that's something that is huge with writing groups. And I think every writer should belong to at least one. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. You, you know, the actual nuts and bolts of the process, you have to do on your own, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but but it is that that support. But also the, there's the, you know, the, the ability to, to for younger writers to bring on younger writers to to work with with in, in a creative way with, with a lot of different types of people, mm -hmm. um, you know, from people just starting to experience writers and uh, and also readers as well, you know, because it's a collaboration really between you know, writers and readers. And, you know, the, the ultimate aim is, is that you're both happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, you, you're right. It is that that sort of importance of being part of a group, whether, you know, whether it's a local or a national or, or you know, several, you know, just writers getting together. It's, it's very important that that you've got somebody to talk to about things. Yeah. And not just for, you know, yes you learn and you can learn 
a ton of stuff from each other, but it's also just that, you know, almost like that sense of belonging or, you know, that you're with like-minded people and who have the same goals and, and that kind of thing. It's just, it, it's a nice feeling to, to have that group to bounce ideas off of, or just to say, you know, Hey, how's it going? How's your new project coming along? And just to have that, not just the support and encouragement, but just that ability to reach out to people that, that you've gotten to know. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, it's, it's one of the, the real comforts of the creative world. Mm -hmm. And we all need, need a hug now and again. Yeah. Yeah. Know. That's for sure. And it's to do with that as well, you know, yeah. and to say, okay, you know, it's tough, it's tough and it'll be hard and, 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 and you'll get there. You just keep going. Don't give up, you know, yes. don't, don't stop doing it because you've got hurdles there. Yeah. Talk to somebody, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And then just kind of spinning a little bit here, you also founded Funky Medics. So that's your production company that focuses on innovative health education. Can you give our listeners a little bit of an overview of what that is? Yeah, I, I mean, that, that came out of um, uh, of sort of meeting up with a scientist and a consultant. And they were, they were doing sort of lectures for sixth formers, for 17 and 18 year olds on, on blood and uh, heart problems and things like that. And although, although their, their lectures that I went to weren't, weren't straight and, and, so, and sort of fusty, they, they, they were quite funny. And I just began to realize that perhaps the way to do this was with humor. And, and so the idea came about and we joined forces eventually to get health message across. You need humor uh, and you need a reverence perhaps as well. And, and so it's taking a, a complex subject, and, and that is something that has sort of always fascinated me as well, taking a very complex subject and trying to use myself as the lowest common denominator, if you like. And so if I understand something, then probably everybody does. <laughs> you know, oh, okay. and, and so the concept of, of, of science in, with, within a sort of medical condition is vast. You know, there's an awful lot of science around it. But the actual structure of, of what, why, and what I can do about it uh, is, is quite simple. So it was finding that sort of simple pathway, that A plus B equals C equation, that would, you know, educate, excite, and empower people to, to take control of what, what they were doing. And we started with one that was to do with a, a thing called familial hypercholesterolemia, which, which is inherited uh, high cholesterol. And of all the conditions, it's one of those that, that if you if you have a condition, it's a, a pretty good one to have because if you you know take your pills and obey, obey a few rules, then you know you've got as much chance as anybody else. And and it's a condition that that I had through meeting these people. Um, I didn't have it, have a serious condition, but it it allowed me into into that world a little bit. But it was just getting that message across and bringing lifestyle into it and and doing all that sort of thing so, so that you made it easy for people to follow the rules, if you like. We decided that one of the first things we do, we do, we do a rap. And to get into a rap and, and rhyme things with, with hypercholesterolemia, oh. uh, like that was, was a challenge, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, I but bet. We but we did it and it was a lot of fun. And, you know, for a while people, I think it was a little bit before its time when we started doing it. Uh, because there's a lot of it going on now, okay. and people were, were taken aback <laughs> slightly <laughs> to start with, but uh, we got there, you know, and and uh, so so we did that, and we did one on smoking, and and I did try and do um, a pan India thing on on diabetes, which almost happened. Um, uh, we were we were hoping to do a, a Bollywood movie because it's the best way to. To get at everybody, you know, and mm -hmm. India's got a high rate of diabetes, both pre-diabetes and, and with full diabetes. And I met up with an awful lot of really, really nice people over there who were very helpful, but we didn't quite make it. So that's sort of possibly ongoing. And oh, okay. it, it, hopefully it will happen one day because I think it, it would be great to do. Um, yeah. But we shall see. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like it's important messages that you're putting out there. And I think putting that humor humorous spin on it 
I, I think it would be helpful and, and to, to get more people interested in listening to what the message is. Yeah, it, it's not negating the seriousness of it at all. And it's, mm -hmm. it's irreverence has a real, really special place in education, I think, certainly health education, because it, it, it allows you to, to accept in, in, in this in a sort of lighter way, if you like, and right, and, and to have a, have a direct knowledge of, of, of what the problem is. Yeah, and it's fun to, to do the raps and, and you know, do, and we did animations as well, which was and animations are great, because they travel, you change the, the language and actually we almost did I almost did one uh, in Montreal. Okay. Uh, and who knows that might happen one day. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so between all of these things, so you, you've worked as an actor, a writer, a producer on animated films, um, this, the funky medic stuff, the feature films, digital audiobook, TV series, etc. You also teach creative writing and screenplay development. So between all of these exciting experiences and being a writer, what is it that you enjoy about them the most? Is there any one particular area that you like more than the others? I love the creative diversity of it all. You know, I think it's difficult to focus on everything, but it, it's it's that each project that that you approach has a way of doing it, and it's it's how you can approach, uh, how you are capable. What is your best way of approaching that project? You know, whether it be it, it's screenwriting, whether it's animation, whether it's you know any of those levels. I think I like screenwriting. You know, and I, I love the idea of film. But then I, I love the idea of books, but I love the health stuff as well, because that's, <laughs> you know, it, it, I, I think it's all that creative world that, that, that excites me. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's entertainment as well. It's, of course, it's entertainment. But somewhere along the line, you know, if, if, if you can, you know, touch people in some sort of way, then, and I think of all those things, you have the, the potential of touching people um, mm -hmm. and helping their lives along you know and they and them doing that to you as well excellent answer because <laughs> they all sound exciting equally it is the new when, when i saw when you when you said that you go ah oh, <laughs> <laughs> and i think well just truthfully i suppose <laughs> i know yeah. it doesn't sound too crazy no no not at all no um it sounds very exciting and i i would probably say the same thing i would never be able to pick one more than the other and it's and that's what it comes down to at the end of the day you you're able to have some kind of effect on someone somewhere and that's that's what we're all trying to do we're just yeah. trying to make a positive impact on someone's life yeah absolutely mm. so it's, it's what i love about books taking you into a different world yeah um, can you tell us a little bit about what projects you're currently working on? Well, I mean, one of the biggest things is Diamond Crime, which is a small new indie publishing house that um, I and two other writers, uh, all published, you know, fiction authors, crime fiction authors, set up and launched in May 2021. It was, it was a bit, a bit of... <laughs> It's a bit of a bad thing to do. It was it was sort of <laughs> in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah, and we were sort of all looking for new homes for our books, and had started that sort of tortuous journey that's leading to trying to find the right publisher for you, and it was proving to be sort of frustrating and time consuming, and we thought, well, hang on, perhaps there's another way of doing this, a different way of doing it, perhaps. So we started to look at the world of of digital publishing. And after months and months and months of researching it, we realized that that it was that publishing ebooks and paperbacks was feasible uh, and at and a not hugely astronomical cost, uh, which was quite important because we didn't want to start any sort of project with a debt on our back. We wanted to be able to support it ourselves. And so we had known each other for a long time, three of us. And this again is a little bit about the mix of, of creative worlds. And, and we had worked in, in, in the world of media for, for many years together, taking a, a variety of projects through from the development stage through to, um, through to production and then on to distribution. And during that process, we'd worked with lots of writers 
on, on books, plays and scripts and, and, and other things. And so we knew that they were transferable skills, perhaps, into the publishing world. But there were other things that we would need that we had, you know, experience of things like social, the social media side of it, the PR, the, the design, the book design, the typeset design, and all those other things that are, that are part of the publishing process. So we thought if we could get a team around us that would buy into what we wanted, then, you know, we'd, we'd have a chance. And we sort of knew what we would want from a publisher, which was trust, care, uh, support and creative collaboration. And if we could provide that for writers, then, you know, it was it was worth doing. And also, you know, if we could help writers that have a great talent, but don't get the opportunity to be published or even read sometimes. So we decided to set it up and we thought we'll do it with our own books to start with so that if it all falls apart, we're the only ones that are going to suffer. <laughs> uh, yeah. but, luckily, but luckily it didn't. So, and, and slowly, you know, people came to us and now we have nine authors. We have 20 titles, or by the end of this year, we'll have 20 titles out. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're beginning to, to understand. And I, th I think the writers all bought into our ethos and, and it's, it's actually trying not to grow too quickly so that we can work as much with the writers as possible, because the whole idea is that the best book that they have is what we want. Mm -hmm. um, so it's that collaborative process of editing and, and, and working together with the writers until you're all happy with it. Wonderful. So there's that. Yeah. Uh, and I've got a couple of movie things that, that, that are boiling over. There's one, hopefully, which is... Is, is which is in Manitoba, which will be hopefully in, in going to production in, in 2023. But I think that's probably enough to take up my, my time. <laughs> well, although, it sounds amazing. I, I do have a couple of other books that I want to write, but I haven't got, as you can see, I don't really have time at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I know all about that. <laughs> yeah. um, well, that sounds amazing about Diamond Crime. Um, it's It's interesting to hear how these these publishing companies kind of get started um, and I really like what you stand for there so that's wonderful so my last question for you today would be what advice do you have for writers who sort of have their eggs in many baskets like do you have advice for time management or the writing process in these areas well I think with eggs in the basket you don't shake them up too much because that way you crack and they, they break right um <laughs> I think it's being able to focus on what you're doing at the time. You know, there's a lot of people who can do many different things at the same time, but I think there's a point where you have to really focus on what you're doing and, and, and make that project the best it can be. And with the writing process, I think it's, it's always learn and, and, and always accept help. Uh, and the idea, you know, the, the things that you learn, about writing and, and you know and also that, that I'm learning from the publishing world is is about how you you as, as, as a writer have ways that you try and, and get through the work you know and and repetition uh, subtle repetition is one of them where you where you say and you show at the same time you know and it, it's finding a way of not doing that mm -hmm. uh, and, and of keeping things simple because you have to keep that simple storyline in your head all the way through. As with the, the, you know, the health stuff, that A plus B equals C. It's the beginning, the middle and the end of the story. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And just keep going. Don't give up. It's a great thing to be, to be a, a writer and to be in this creative world with these wonderful creative people around you. But, uh, you know, it's hard in every, every side of life, particularly now. Right. Yeah, I agree. Um, you hear that? I mean, you, that's probably advice that almost every writer says, you know, don't give up. But it's it's true. It, you, you have to you have to persevere. You have to persist. You have to be determined and you have to just keep trying because you, I don't think any of us ever got it on the first try. We have to put everything we are into it. We have to learn as much as possible. We have to apply what we've learned and just keep going because eventually if you have that goal and you want it bad enough, you're going to get there. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's like the, the idea of 
you know, of an artist building up a, a sort of contemporary painting where you've got layers of colour. Um, you know, you, you have to keep going, you have to build on those layers and, uh, and, and understand. And I think every time you write, you understand yourself a bit more uh, and you understand your process and you learn and constantly learn and, and talk to people. And I, I love talking to writers about how they do things, what they do. And we all have different approaches. You know, there is a commonality, but um, we all approach things in the, in the way that, that we find best to do it. Mm -hmm. always ask for help don't don't yes. ever be too proud not to ask for help yeah absolutely don't ever be afraid to to reach out and because uh, no. more times than not the people are that you're reaching out to they're going to have something that they would love to talk to you about and to would love to help you with yeah absolutely and people are kind yes you know and writers are a kind bunch of people yeah wonderful well phil thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today i really enjoyed it well, good. I, I hope it's made some sense. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, everyone. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Phil, and I hope you can take away something about our conversation and or about weaving in elements into your story organically that will help you on your writing journey. If you have a question about writing or you have a topic that you'd like to hear explored in an upcoming episode, please go to the form in my pinned tweet at underscore badass writers or on my website at kathleenfox.com slash badass writers dash podcast. Yes, I am still on Twitter. I'm not going anywhere unless it completely dies. I will stay there until it's literally sinking. I am on Mastodon. I have created an account there. It's kfox underscore writes, the same thing as my Twitter, my, my author Twitter. So you can find me there, but again, I'm on Instagram. So please stay in touch. I really hope that Twitter does not go anywhere and that everything gets worked out because I like Twitter. I love you guys. I love the community that I've built up there and I would really, really hate to see it go by the wayside. Thanks for tuning in and until next time, keep being badass.